0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 16, and you will find this in the Pew Bible on page 924, no, 925, excuse me. We're looking together at Acts chapter 16, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of God. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I believe it's true to say that everybody in this room, at one point or another, has been in need of guidance. There have been situations in which we just don't have a clear sense of what to do. A career move, perhaps, a business deal, a choice of a school, a marriage partner. The list could go on, but the point is that we are often in need of guidance. And I think this passage is a good reminder that God provides his children with direction. After all, he is our shepherd most notably Psalm 23, and he's promised to lead his sheep. And I think we find an illustration of this in the lives of these missionaries. Luke highlights their journey to Mycenae through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, Paul, Silas, Timothy revisiting the churches that they planted on the first missionary trip. And their strategy was to head west into Asia where they would break new ground. And it seemed like a good plan. They were eager to preach the gospel there. They needed it. But it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, for reasons known only to God, they were not to evangelize those people at this point. And the record here gives no other explanation than the sovereignty of God's Spirit. There is no indication of how the prohibition was conveyed. Perhaps it was a prophetic utterance, maybe a night vision, maybe an inward prompting. My hunch, and it's only a hunch, is that Luke is referring here to God's overruling providence. In other words, the circumstances were such in the lives of those men that the three couldn't travel north for whatever reason. And they had a healthy biblical view of providence, that God was in control. Isn't this what we profess routinely in the Heidelberg? Jesus Christ so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. That's what we confess. And what we do know for sure here is that God prevented them from working in Asia. And I think some people might see that as a setback, especially after all of their careful planning. Paul was not the kind of guy to simply fly by the seat of his pants. He wasn't going to wing it. I'm confident that these men strategized and considered the cities and the demographics, even back then, and all kinds of things... And after settling on a plan and making due preparations, all of it is scrapped. (laughs) But these men understood that they were men simply fulfilling a role. They understood that Jesus Christ is king, they were simply his ambassadors, his heralds, his servants. And they realized that God has every right to send them wherever he pleases. Every right. That's what sovereignty means. And being denied access to Asia was nothing personal because God has a plan. This is what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 19.21. He says, many are the plans in the mind of a man or woman. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So being prohibited from preaching in Asia, they then planned to go north to Bithynia. It contained some prominent cities, not least of which was Nicaea. But then as they headed north, it says the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So once again, they were prohibited from pursuing some well-laid plans. No hint of frustration. No mention of disappointment here. They believed in the providence of God, that God was carefully directing every step. And what better comfort is there than in our service to the king, knowing that he's calling the shots? The Holy Spirit as it says, was sovereignly and sweetly guiding all of their movements, and he directed them either explicitly by revelation or implicitly by providence. Either one, he directed them. And the missionaries, as far as I can tell, were content to follow him wherever he led them. They were not about the work of advancing their own kingdom. That's a key. If we get so frustrated at what the Holy Spirit's doing, it's our kingdom, not his. Their time, their talent, their treasure were being devoted to the kingdom of Christ, and these men were not their own. They were mere stewards. And how convicted I am by this text. How often, daily, do I get frustrated when my plan is thwarted? My long-suffering wife can confirm this for you. I've been walking with the Lord almost 40 years, and I'm still learning. I know in my head, I confess the catechism question, that God is in control of every detail of my life. So why is it, and I know the answer, why is it that I fuss and I fret when I'm stuck in traffic? When something mechanical breaks down? When the car goes on the fritz? It happens all the time. The psalmist tells me, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He does whatever he pleases. But I will say this. These prohibitions from the Holy Spirit raise some questions in my mind. Maybe they raise the same questions in yours. I don't know. Did not the sinners in Asia and Bithynia need to hear the gospel of Christ? Why would the Holy Spirit deny them the opportunity of trusting in Jesus? Did you you question that in your mind? What could be more pressing than getting the word to those sinners well, the only answer that I can give is that it's God's sovereign good pleasure. It's enough for us to know that He has an eternal master plan. Let me quote another Old Testament verse from Psalm 33:11. "The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations." So that tells me that he has an overarching redemptive purpose in everything he does. And apparently, in this case, that plan called for ministry in other regions. We don't know the reasons why, but we do know that he's infinitely wise and his plan is perfect. And every person who needs to will hear the gospel. Everyone. We can't get bent out of shape in frustration when he thwarts our plans. I'm preaching to myself. We may think from our perspective that, Lord, it's unwise. That's unfruitful. That's so inefficient. But hindsight, at least in my experience, has always proved that God's wisdom is best. And as it turns out, the churches that were planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth were the fruit of them going to Macedonia. And eventually, Paul was able to circle back and labor for three years in Ephesus, where he wanted to go in the first place. That was the central and perhaps the most important city in Asia. So the people in both Asia and Bithynia would be offered the terms of the gospel, but it would be in God's timing. And Christianity would spread, but not in the exact way that they first thought. Don't you find it interesting that Luke describes the spirit here as the spirit of Jesus? Did you catch that? It shouldn't surprise us, I guess, because he proceeds from both the Father and the Son, but this designation is used only twice in the entire New Testament, the Spirit of Jesus. Paul calls him the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, as the one who helped him in his imprisonment. And then here, Luke identifies him as the Spirit of Jesus. What does that mean? Why this rare phraseology? Well, I think one reason might be to underscore the royal authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king and head of the church. He does control the spread of the gospel. John said, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Christ in the midst of his churches and he promised to be with his church to the end of the world and he's actively involved through his spirit in the gospel ministry and true to his word Jesus is directing and governing all things for our good I've got to remind myself of that so the missionaries didn't give up but they turned west toward the coastal town of Troas and it was an important seaport and most likely they planted a church there. Later on, they would revisit Troas and they would stay there for seven days, which tells me that there were fellow believers who hosted them. But here's the point these missionaries didn't feel the need to regroup, to unwind, to take a break or a sabbatical. Those three men devoted themselves to the mission wherever God led them. Their aim was to be both faithful and fruitful so the kingdom could advance, and when they were denied access in one place, they would try another. And when they were denied access again, they would try yet another. They were, to use a very fancy word, indefatigable, unwavering, determined, As Paul would say to the Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's a valuable lesson for all of us. Don't give up. I remember, and I shouldn't go off script, but Winston Churchill asked to give a commencement address out east someplace. Maybe you've heard this. It's his turn to get up. He comes to the podium and he says this, never give up, never give up, never give up. And he sat down. (laughs) And that was his commencement address. And I think the Christian can say that in good conscience. When God closes one door, he always opens another and we shouldn't be overwhelmed because he is in control. And his providence is perfect. And if he prevents something, then that's good. Because the psalmist teaches us that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If it's not good, he'll withhold it. If it's good, he won't withhold it. And it was while in Troas that they finally received some positive direction. The Holy Spirit revealed to Paul in a night vision that they should go to Macedonia. He interpreted it as a leading of the Spirit, some divine signal. And we notice that from this point, Luke begins to use the first person plural. Did you notice that? When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. And so he no longer writes about them. He himself has joined the team. And he's an eyewitness. So in looking at this, I think the first uh, point of application would be this, that this text teaches us something about the sovereign purpose of God. It shows us how the missionaries were being directed by the Lord. He was leading them into new fields of ministry and effectiveness, and behind the divine guidance was God's eternal divine purpose. Isaiah 46, very explicit. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. He had reasons for intervening and denying access to the men, and it shows me that he's not aloof. He is keenly interested and involved in the affairs of people. The deists would describe him as some sort of cosmic clockmaker. He wound up the clock at the beginning, and he has no further involvement. But here we see that the spirit of Jesus was actively intervening in the details. And this text also teaches us that history is not cyclical, cycles over and over and over again, but linear. It's got a purpose. In other words, God gives meaning in his unfolding plan. The ancient Greeks, you probably know this, believed that history was simply an endless series of cycles, I have a guy that I work out with. He's a Hindu. And I asked him what he believed in incarnation or reincarnation. Sorry. What, what happens to you? Well, you live your life as good as you can, you die, you come back as something else. And depending on how you lived your life, you could be a frog, a toad, or a king. What kind of hope is that? There's purpose. The Greeks were wrong. There's not this monotonous, never-ending cycle repeated over and over again because the only hope there would be this little enjoyment before getting off the ride. I once saw a lady wearing a T-shirt, and on the T-shirt had this printed on the back. We are not here for a long time. We are here for a good time. And I thought to myself, had she given any thought to the ultimate meaning of life? I don't know. I didn't know who she was. But did she understand the nature and the significance of history as a whole? She seems to have accepted the idea that life is without ultimate purpose. Just have a good time. Like the rich man's soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But this passage shows that history has a purpose and God gives it direction. He has a plan that is unfolding according to his infallible foreknowledge and his purpose is to save a remnant of mankind from the judgment to come. And when he does that, it's going to magnify the glory of his matchless grace. No created thing Or, person can hinder its progress. Everything serves his purpose, and that means that there is meaning and purpose in everything that you do, in every menial task. You know that last school assignment that you had? That has purpose. You know the thousandth diaper that you've changed? The five thousandth meal that you've planned and prepared? That has purpose. It's important to understand that your life has purpose, and so does mine, and it makes no difference who you are. Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them. A sparrow. Something so insignificant as a bird. Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, he goes on, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, how insignificant is that? This teaches us something about God's sovereign purpose. But it also teaches us something about the nature of human plans. It was prudent, I think, for Paul and Silas and Timothy to strategize We don't run aimlessly. We don't box beating the air. We make a plan. We pursue it. You're a master planner. (laughs) It's a good thing. That's what athletes do. They discipline themselves. They set up a regimen. The date of the contest is set, and they train in order to win the prize. And ministry is no different. God appoints the means, and we make our plans. You know that in general terms, Christ commissioned the church. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. There's the commission. That's the commission for the church. But it's so general. What are the specifics? How do we go about using these means to disciple people from all nations? And Christ leaves it to the church to plan and strategize and mobilize to fulfill this task. Make disciples of all nations. And this is what the missionaries were doing. Because Paul knew that on a daily basis, sinners were plunging into hell. He watched his fellow unbelieving Jews perish in their sins. He knew it. Everybody or anybody who doesn't trust in Christ will die in his sins under a load of guilt. And in that case, there is no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation. There's no hope. And so, Paul, knowing this, constantly planned on how to effectively spread the gospel. But then we also learn that God's purpose takes precedence over man's plans. As we strategize, as we plan, We recognize that oftentimes a change will be necessary because God accomplishes his purpose and he uses free agents to do it. And that's a mystery to me. I'll be honest with you. I don't have an answer for that. It's taken me almost 30 years as a public person to be able to admit that. I don't understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility perfectly blend, but they do. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Man's plans, God's purpose, they go hand in hand, they harmonize. We think, consult, and act freely, and he permits and overrules and superintends all of it. And thus, while man proposes, God disposes, and while we derive, he directs. And it's not just the great public events of history either. It's every detail of your life, every detail of your life. The fact that you're sitting in that pew this morning has been planned by God. One man's insomnia might seem utterly inconsequential to us, so he misses a few hours of sleep. But how vast were the implications of the king's sleepless night. That's when he read about Mordecai, whom he sought to honor. And the book of Esther shows that providence is concerned with details That routine business deal, that casual conversation that you didn't expect, that cup of water, that prayer meeting. We plan things and God rules and overrules them to accomplish his purpose. And sometimes he works through our plans and sometimes he overrides our plans. He's always fulfilling his overarching purpose to save the elect. And he may block your way. And he might close the door, and he might raise up an obstacle and prevent success. And all sorts of snags and difficulties that seem to frustrate your plans. And discouragement sets in. You're discouraged. And you're sorely tempted to throw in the towel. But he tells us, no, he promises us that he's working it all together together. For good. And the day will come, and perhaps it'll be in this life, but certainly in the next, when you will say, I planned my way, but God ordered my steps, and He led me in the way of salvation. And you know something? A person with that kind of faith is rarely discouraged with setbacks. We remember that God deals with His children out of love and mercy. The difficulties, the disappointments, the deflections of life, these things are necessary. If I truly believe that what God promises is true, bring the broken leg. It's necessary. Give me what you have. Because I know that with wisdom, he's planning it. And without it, I wouldn't make it. But this passage finally also teaches us something about spiritual guidance They didn't know what was best. How could they? They weren't omniscient. They needed the all-knowing God to guide them, and he did. But there's more to it than that. Sinclair Ferguson, with whom I'm sure most, if not all of you, are familiar, Sinclair Ferguson makes a very insightful comment when he says this, We learn about guidance primarily by learning about the guide. It is the knowledge of God and his ways with men which ultimately gives us stability in doing his will. Very insightful. If we want to be divinely guided, we must know God. There must be a relationship with him. And if by trusting in Jesus we have fellowship with him, then he promises to guide us. And we'll become wise and are guided in knowing and loving him. And there are three basic ways that Ferguson points out that God guides us. Number one, there are commands and prohibitions. For example, the Ten Commandments. These are the laws that God has revealed to guide and govern our lives. They express his holy nature and his divine will, as we said in Sunday school. And they help us answer the first question that you must always ask. Remember, is it lawful? That's the first thing. Commandments and prohibitions. Is it lawful? Secondly, God gives us principles in Scripture to help frame our lives. Let me give you an example. Bad company corrupts good morals. It doesn't tell us who we may or may not befriend, but it guides us. There's a principle. Ponder this one. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Proverbs, they're full of wisdom and principles for living. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so with that in mind, it's difficult to imagine failing to do what is right. So commandments and prohibitions help us answer the first question. Is it lawful? Principles help us answer the second question. Is it wise? You have to ask those two questions Whenever you're faced with a decision. And then, third, according to Ferguson, God gives us in His Word illustrations of wisdom and action. All kinds of examples of godly people striving to live for Christ. They seek conformity to His commands, they try to live by godly principles, but they can't seem to get it right. They don't know how to put it into practice. And so there are biblical illustrations that teach lessons even when they miserably fail. Let me give an example of that. David's idleness contributed to his sin with Bathsheba. There's an illustration. Don't be idle. Asaph struggled with the confusion caused by the prosperity of the wicked. And he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. In the sanctuary, in public worship, his thinking was reoriented. Don't absent yourself. Divinely given sources of guidance, commands and prohibitions, principles, illustrations. Let me tell you a story about an old sailor. He repeatedly got lost at sea, and his friends gave him a compass. You're obviously having trouble. Here's a compass. And the next time he went out, he took it along with him, but as usual, he became hopelessly confused and was unable to find his way and had to be rescued once again. Disgusted and impatient, his friends asked him, why didn't you use the compass? You could have saved us a lot of trouble. And the sailor said this, I didn't dare to. I wanted to go north, but as hard as I tried to make that needle aim in that direction, it kept pointing to southeast. (laughs) You see, the old sailor was so certain that he knew the way, that he ignored the compass. Sometimes you and I are so sure we know the way, we ignore God's resources. Do you know the guide? How well do you know his revealed word? Are you in the habit of going to God in prayer and asking for guidance? He is our shepherd. He loves the sheep. And he's more than willing to guide us. We're told in Psalm 143, and I close with this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust you as a good and wise and holy God to unfold your ultimate purpose in the best way. We thank you that you're involved in the details of our lives and you give it purpose and meaning. And we pray that you'll teach us to trust you and not to be frustrated by your sovereign good pleasure. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.